0: It's been a little over a week since the slap that stopped Hollywood. Will Smith has resigned from the Academy, meaning he can no longer vote on the awards, but he's still eligible for nominations and can still attend ceremonies. As of now, he also still has his Oscar. And yes, we're still talking about this, because so many people are talking about this. But one person who hasn't said a lot is Chris Rock. At a sold-out show last weekend, he said he was still processing the whole thing. But his brother and fellow comedian, Tony Rock, had a lot more to say at his show over the weekend. You gonna hit my motherfucking brother? Cause your gave you a side eye? I'm still not clear why he called out Jada, even though she did nothing at the Oscars but sit there. That aside, Tony Rock and Chris Rock are brothers, so it's understandable why he'd be upset. But a lot of comics who aren't related to Chris Rock seem to be taking this really seriously. Jim Carrey, Stephen Colbert, and Rosie O'Donnell were among the comedians who spoke out against Will Smith's actions. David Spade said it set a dangerous precedent. Wanda Sykes said the situation was sickening. Amy Schumer said she was traumatized. Kathy Griffin said she's worried about the next Will Smith in comedy clubs. Cheryl Underwood said that as a comic, she's afraid to get on stage. And Bill Maher also had some less-than-favorable words for Will Smith. Most comedians seem to agree that no matter what they say, hitting them is never okay.
1: As someone who is a person of color, who's performed in lots of settings that are mostly white, where I'm saying things that angers lots of white people about racism, like, I've been threatened on stage.
0: Hari Kondabolu is a comedian and writer. You can find his special Warn Your Relatives on Netflix.
1: Not only have racist things been yelled at me, I've had people escorted out of shows who have gotten up. I think I have a video somewhere of a man getting up, his fists are up, and he has to be taken out of the showroom. So, like, that's not a thing that should happen when you're, you know, expressing free speech. Being critical of someone's free speech is, is well within, to me, the rules of art, but not violence. If Chris Rock said that to Jada Pinkett Smith at the party afterwards, I mean, I don't know what the rules are there, necessarily. But when a person is performing, there are ways to deal with what the person says, and it's not like that. Also, it was Will Smith. It was somebody who, like, people love and respect. It wasn't somebody who, like, yeah, this could have happened. I could have seen this coming. You know, this was somebody that nobody expected it was, it was going to be him. He's so beloved, and so when somebody like that does it, All of a sudden, it really does seem reasonable to a lot of people. I don't like what this person says, and they're going to pay for it.
0: This idea that Will Smith's actions could give license to other people when they have an issue with something a comedian says keeps coming up. And it connects to a bigger conversation we've been having about comedy and cancel culture for a while now. Welcome to Pop Culture. I'm Bridget Armstrong. Slap has reignited a discussion about comedy and what it means to punch up or down. Today, a conversation about how comedy is evolving to respond to a wider, more vocal audience. When one of the most successful Black actors in Hollywood slaps one of the most famous Black comedians in a room full of their peers during the biggest event in the industry, While it's being aired on international television, it's bound to start some conversations. What happened at the Oscars is the kind of incident that holds a mirror up to society and says, pick your issue, they're all there. Privilege, race, misogyny, toxic masculinity, ableism. But one of the most interesting conversations to me in the debate is about comedy, and if the pursuit of a laugh outweighs so-called political correctness. It feels like a discussion we've been having for years.
2: One of the first things in everybody's mind was the question of whether Chris Rock was justified in making the joke to begin with.
0: Asia Romano is a culture reporter for Vox.
2: Obviously, Will Smith thought it wasn't a justified joke at all, but a lot of people pointed out that initially he was laughing. (laughs) So I think that moment in itself has obviously become very intense. I think we've also had a number of different contributions to the debate recently, including the debate around Joe Rogan and the video that recently resurfaced of him dropping the N-word on his podcast, and things like Dave Chappelle's comedy specials for Netflix, which have targeted trans people in ways that many trans people and allies find deeply threatening to their humanity. So we've got a lot of things happening in the comedy conversation right now. It's a very charged moment, to say the least.
0: The conversation about comedy is really a debate about so-called cancel culture, and how audiences should react when they're offended by a comedian. When Dave Chappelle got backlash for his Netflix specials from trans people and their allies, he blamed cancel culture, and he dismissed the criticisms as Twitter fodder. And he's part of a growing list of comedians who say the way society deals with offensive jokes is ruining comedy. That list includes Chris Rock, Bill Burr, Steve Harvey, John Lovitz, Kevin Hart, Ricky Gervais, John Cleese, and a lot of other people even with this Will Smith, Chris Rock situation. If there's one group of people who seem to be in complete support of Chris Rock, it's his fellow comics. Now, whether or not you believe the slap was unwarranted, the debate around the joke itself raises questions about what should and shouldn't be off limits in comedy. Rock made a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith's shaved haircut. Pinkett Smith has alopecia. So a lot of people, apparently Will Smith included, thought the joke went too far. Even though some comedians might think there are jokes that cross the line, most of them are reticent about saying where exactly that line is. That idea that comedy should be above reproach and comedians should be allowed to say whatever they want, even if it's offensive, might have something to do with the way comedy was censored in the early days of stand-up.
2: You've always had comedy going head-to-head with debates around free speech, for one thing. You know, you've had comedians who have built much of their entire platform, like George Carlin, for example, around the idea of free speech and the right of comedians to, to be able to say and do whatever they want to on stage. Carlin, seven words you can't say on television, right?
1: They called them bad words, dirty,
2: filthy, foul,
1: vile, vulgar,
2: coarse, in poor taste, suggestive, cursing, cussing, swearing, and all I could think of was shit, piss, fuck, fuck suck a motherfucker, That was a big, big, big moment for free speech and comedy and really changed the way a lot of people thought about comedy. Another landmark incident in comedy was uh, Lenny Bruce's fighting its obscenity charges in the 60s. I think his first, like, he was arrested numerous times, but the first one was in 1961.
0: He was arrested after a show in San Francisco for, among other things, using the word cocksucker in his act. You might be interested in how I became offensive. (laughs) <laughs> uh, I like started in school with um
1: uh, drinking and uh, I was really I was like a real depressed kid, you know seven, eight years old, I really get juiced and get out of. Mind.
2: and Lenny Bruce really made a cornerstone of his entire career, challenging our sense of decorum and decency around comedy in ways that obviously really rubbed people the wrong way but was also hugely influential and I think. Things like that have really paved the way for this sense that comedy is a bastion of free speech because you've always had comedians who have really tested the limits of that idea and just sort of claim a kind of no holds barred in the name of comedy, like anything goes. And I think that's still a platform that a lot of comedians are ready to, that's the hill they want to die on. That they should have the right to, to say whatever they want and whatever comes out of that is part of the nature of comedy. You know, whether if it's controversial, it's edgy. Sometimes that's all in the name of challenging the audience and maybe to some comedians that's inherently good.
0: Interestingly enough, Lenny Bruce had a famous joke where he repeated the N-word a bunch of times with a bunch of other racial slurs. The point of the joke wasn't to be racist, but rather to point out that words only have meanings because people assign them. Now, with my 2022 ears, that joke just sounds like a white man saying the N-word over and over, trying to make a point he has no grounds to make. And you can imagine the reaction to a white comedian making that joke today. But to our knowledge, Bruce was never arrested for saying that word. Because at the time, racial slurs didn't hold the same weight for mainstream white America. It's been a long time since the days when the comedian could push the envelope by just saying a few curse words on stage. These days, when there's a public outcry about something a comedian has said, it's usually because they've offended a marginalized group, not mainstream sensibilities.
2: You have a a number of things complicating that argument. Of course, obviously, the, the rise of social media as a platform and as a form of discourse has obviously made the public sphere much more diverse, has made the public sphere much more open to, to marginalized voices that would never have previously within culture gotten a chance to say how this type of comedy might hurt them. Dave Chappelle versus trans people is an excellent example of that because previously, throughout the history of comedy, there weren't really that many trans voices to come together to be like, hey, this is how this comedy is, is harmful and transphobic. You hear more voices like that now as a matter of course, just because of the internet giving access to more people. And that's definitely changed the nature of the way we think about comedy, just like it's changed the nature of everything else that we think about in terms of pop culture these days. You know, we have the rise of cancel culture.
0: And while a lot of comedians may think that cancel culture is the worst thing to ever happen, there are some comics who don't. And we caught one of them up.
1: Cancel culture? That's just capitalism. Historically, who has canceled people? Networks and the government. Like, what are you talking about?
0: That's Hari Kondabolu again. You heard from him at the top of the show. And he thinks the conversation about cancel culture and comedy misses the point of what it means to actually be canceled.
1: Paul Robeson was canceled, right? He wasn't allowed to work because he was a leftist.
0: Although Paul Robeson never admitted to being a communist, it was widely suspected by the U.S. government that he was. He was labeled a traitor. The government refused to renew his passport. His college deleted him from the archives and he was blacklisted in Hollywood.
1: And he was the biggest star in the world, arguably, during like the the twenties and the thirties, and he was black. And they deleted him. That's cancellation. What happened to Colin Kaepernick? You know, it's not cancellation by the government, but essentially a multi-billion dollar industry colluded to prevent him from getting work. That's part of capitalism, but that's closer to cancellation than what comedians are worried about. If I do something fucked up, or I say something fucked up, and people choose not to support me, that's part of it. There are also people who, like, say f***ed up things, and they lose a lot of their base, but they still have a base of people that support them and will still go to their shows.
0: And they get a new base sometimes too, right? They
1: get all the people that were like growing underneath rocks and, uh, you know, I I just cancel culture thing. It's a very bizarre thing.
0: If you want more proof that cancel culture isn't real in the United States, Asia said just look at other countries like China, where free speech isn't really a thing.
2: The, The vast difference in the way like Chinese pop culture responds to a scandal like this is just unreal. Like it would not have happened in china because you would never have had a host being able to improv that freely to begin with Mm. so that joke would not have been made but had it been made had something happened and someone had punched someone else or slapped someone else or done anything like that on an award show immediately like the chinese communist party would have not only like completely blacklisted him they might have blacklisted the comedian who made the joke like we're talking about like cancel culture that is bolstered by the state in a way that I think people
0: don't really appreciate. Last I checked, Dave Chappelle is still working with Netflix. Joe Rogan has a $200 million podcast and Kevin Hart can still sell out arenas. Louis C.K. was canceled not for saying something offensive, but for sexually harassing multiple women. And he just won a Grammy. A lot of
2: people debate whether cancel culture really exists. But what I do think exists is the anxiety around giving more people, giving more diverse voices a stake in the public discourse and the ability to push back against ideas and arguments that harm them. When you're a a member of a marginalized community, obviously everybody has something different that they live with every day. And sometimes it's really hard to convince people not to joke about it. Because if you're not living that experience, you don't know what it's like. But when more people are able to come together and speak out about it, you not only have more awareness within the cultural sphere of how a joke might hurt somebody, right? But you also have more pushback and more immediate sense of resentment and more debate around the idea of punching down, you know, what it means to punch down. And I'm sure Chris Rock thought that on stage when he improved that joke, he was just taking the wind out of Jada Pinkett Smith, who's one of the most powerful women in Hollywood, married to one of the most powerful men in Hollywood. So, from his perspective, he might not have thought that joke was punching down, but from the perspective of people who view alopecia as a disability, that that joke was the epitome of punching down. So, you, you not only have more cultural awareness of the ways in which a joke can be harmful, but you have more division around what types of jokes are harmful.
0: So, we might not believe in cancel culture with real consequences. But for the rest of this conversation, cancel culture will mean the social backlash people get when they've done or said something offensive. For a long time, comedy existed in a bubble. Comedians only got feedback from the audience in the room. They knew when a joke bombed, when people didn't laugh, or that a joke went too far by the size and averted looks. But now, not only can we access a comedian's standup on the internet through Netflix specials on YouTube, we can also tell them what we think. A comedian says something enough people don't like, and they become a Twitter hashtag. Sometimes the comedian will apologize. Most of the time, they say their critics are being too sensitive. But maybe being sensitive is okay.
1: I think sensitivities change over time. You know, certainly when a large part of the population doesn't have access to media or the opportunity to say anything without penalty— people of color, marginalized groups, then can you say that those groups are sensitive if they're not even being heard? So as you have like more people of color in public spaces, more women, more queer folks, more tra- you know, trans folks, being able to say what they want and also being able to speak up for themselves, are they being more sensitive or are they finally being heard? So to me, I, I don't really buy that sensitivity argument. Whenever I hear people say that, it just makes them feel old to me, to be perfectly honest. It just sounds like they're saying, oh, the kids these days. And also, I think every generation changes, and it's a comic's responsibility to try to keep you know, up to date, just like you are with technology, just like you are with current events, like, to understand where society is at at that given point. And it's not to say you can't wax nostalgic about the way things used to be, but I think to stay relevant, like, part of it is to know where we're at.
0: Thinking about how to stay relevant and when a joke crosses the line is something hurry does a lot. Do you have a vetting process for jokes? Like something you apply to say, like, does this cross the line? Is this too offensive? Am I punching up versus punching down?
1: I always think about who the target is. If it hurts the feelings of a rich white billionaire, I'm okay with that. That's within my ethos. If it's going after the government, that's within my ethos. I think when it's, hard is that, like, am I going after a group that doesn't have any say, that maybe, and and the joke is a lot more harsh than I intended to be, you know? And it's not to say I, I don't say things that I defend that I later change my mind on, you know? I'm a human being. And also, as a comedian, it's hard to sacrifice a laugh. I get it. That's like the hardest thing to get is to make people laugh. And you have something that works, and you're being told you can't do it, Like, there's a part of me that is a comedian that is very stubborn, that is afraid of silence, that gets it when comedians are like, I don't want to stop telling that. Because it's working and it hurts to stop telling it. But at the end of the day, was it worth it? And to me, there are things that aren't worth it. And at the same time, do I do jokes on stage where I later regret them and stop doing them? Yes!
0: A joke being perceived as offensive has a lot to do with who's telling it and whether the comedian is punching up or down. And that's something comedy has wrestled with since the beginning.
1: In terms of, like, comedy historically being a thing that punches up, I think it has had elements of that for sure. But even if you go back to prior and some of the greatest comics of all time, like, there were definitely, like, moments of punching up, but there were certainly moments where they weren't. I mean, that could be based on the standards of the era, or that could be, I'm not affected by it, so this isn't. Something I want to talk about in the same kind of way Chappelle's doing it. Comedy has been this incredible thing that has been used as a check on power, that has been used for marginalized groups to get their voices heard, has allowed people to build careers much larger than where they started as individuals. But that's not all it's been. It's always been this thing that could go either way. And... It's always been this thing that could offend people on high or people who are struggling. Now, however, the difference is mass media, because of the fact that comedy is more mainstream than it ever has. Growing up, there's a handful of comics who are superstars. Now, there's a handful of comics who are superstars and a bunch of other people that have good followings as the internet. So I think it's always been complicated.
0: I'm glad you guys have a sense of humor. That's good, because you're going to need it, but I don't want anyone to be offended by anything I say, racially, because my parents are white. Please relax.
1: Paul Mooney is one of my favorite all-time comics. I saw Paul Mooney do stand-up when I was maybe 20, and it changed my view of comedy. Like, what you do doesn't need to be for everybody. There is power in speaking to the minority experience. Your truth doesn't need to be popular. And in terms of speaking truth to power, he absolutely did that. However, if you listen to those Mooney records, there's tons of stuff that are you could say are easily are sexist and homophobic, and there's tons of stuff. And yet, you know, his work is still incredibly valuable, but that's kind of always been the way with comedy. Like, it's this is a really an unprecedented time in general for representation because it's so scattered. People have power that didn't have power before because of the internet. You know, production values have lowered where, like, people can create their own platforms without a great deal of money. There's an equalizing element. And that also means that, like, marginalized people in particular, we get to speak up in ways we didn't get to speak up before. So, you know, I, I think now, if we look at, like, the world with our lens now, with all the things we're capable of, it was very different when we're dealing with a handful of performers with power and influence, and most of them being white or men.
0: With more voices in the comedy space, we've seen comics who are taking a different approach to telling jokes.
2: Some comedians moved more into like the realm of media rather than stand-up. We've seen a shift especially since Hannah Gadsby's Nanette, her 2018 special that a lot of people compared
0: to a TED Talk. And what I have done with that comedy show about coming out, was I froze an incredibly formative experience at its trauma point and I sealed it off into jokes. And that story became a routine and through repetition, that joke version fused with my actual memory of what happened. But unfortunately, that joke version was not nearly sophisticated enough to help me undo the damage done to me in reality.
2: The expectation when you're coming to that show is that you're going to see a stand-up performance, but instead she essentially turned that expectation on its head and used it to talk about her experience of being marginalized and bullied as a queer, non-binary person. And I think that's something that a lot of people have come to ridicule in the past several years since Nanette. Like, they've come to sort of decry the quote-unquote TED Talk comedy stage. But I think for many people, that performance was very powerful. And so that performance was a way of saying, hey, there are ways that comedy can kind of reckon with all these growing responsibilities that it has. And how you do that may vary, but I think for many comedians, the important thing is that they grapple with it, you know that they try and take some sort of stance. I guess your stance could be very reactionary. We've seen a lot of comedians take this hardline free speech approach, right? Dave Chappelle is probably the most famous one who's at least been nationally prominent recently. And I think that you've seen other comedians like Moses Storm fall somewhere in the middle where they're trying not to have a TED Talk, but they're also trying to educate you through their comedy. And you can kind of get into the discussion about whether quote unquote wokeness is good for comedy. But I think the best comedians always lead with their experience, right? The things about them that are authentic and are real, they make that a centerpiece of their comedy. And that's one of the reasons that, that we love them And I think for many people, for many comedians especially, putting themselves and their own diverse-lived experiences on stage is incredibly important and is increasingly important.
0: In comedy, there have always been performers who bring their identities and politics to the stage. Dick Gregory successfully blended social commentary and laughs for decades. Dave Chappelle has come up a lot in this conversation as an example of a comedian who'll cross a line for a joke but he's also the guy who did the 846 special in response to the murder of George Floyd. And that was definitely more TED Talk than it was Laugh Factory. The cancel culture debate in comedy implies that comedians can't be funny or thought-provoking or personal without insulting or belittling other people's beliefs and identities. And that's just not the case. But it's unclear whether some comedians are ready to embrace where comedy is heading.
2: The bigger question in the long run isn't Is comedy getting more accountable, but has comedy done enough work to hold itself accountable? Maybe because I think outside of the punch, and I want to I want to be very clear that for me, there's no really invalid way to feel about about the Oscar night incident. If you feel like it was, you know, overblown, or if you feel like everybody was wrong or nobody was wrong, like I think all of those ways are valid ways to feel. But apart from that, like I think the the broader conversation about was the Chris Rock joke acceptable feeds into this idea that, that com- comedians need to be having this conversation transparently and openly in good faith, right? Without the sort of the built-in idea that people are going to come to cancel them no matter what, because that's not what's happening. <laughs> um, we're just trying to make the whole sphere a little safer for as many people as possible.
0: For Hari, this conversation is complicated. On one hand, he understands the perspective of folks who are tired of racist or sexist laughs at their expense. But he's also been the comedian who's telling the offensive joke.
1: I had a joke which, believe it or not, appeared on television the first time I was ever on television. It was on Jimmy Kim Live. Please welcome Hurry Kundabalu. Let me be honest with you, ladies and gentlemen. I've been really nervous about this particular show. I'm a young comic. They gave me this great spot on Jimmy Kim Live. It's a joke I'd been doing for years, post 9-11, right? So we're thinking about hate crimes against brown people and everything else, right? So the joke, and I'm going to paraphrase it, and why I paraphrase it will be clear when I tell the joke. Uh, My name is Hari. It's mispronounced a bunch of different ways. Harry, Hari, Hari. Since 9-11, I've been called sand, N-word. And the idea that I dropped the N-word the first time I was on television is very confusing. Now, the context makes sense. Like, you're talking about... What people were called, oftentimes, especially in the years after 9-11. Sure. But I wasn't thinking about what it means for a non-black person of color to use that word and why people might have been laughing. Some people were laughing because it was like, oh, this guy is talking about like how messed up it was. But the other part of me realized, white people love to hear the N-word, especially if they can't say it. And the thing I discovered is the reason they probably wanted me to do that joke is that, oh my God, we get to hear the N-word. I don't even know if that was even conscious, but it was there. Because I know that when I was doing that joke after shows, I would have white people coming up to me saying, I love that N-word joke, and they would use the N-word. And I would think, that's not what the joke's about. You know, the joke's about my name, the joke's about post-9-11 racism, and there's a second half of the joke that is much longer than that one word. That is about like Microsoft Word is spelling my name wrong, spelling it hair. And the only thing you retain was the sand N word part. And you wanted to make sure you got to say that to me, which means you've been dying to say the word and I just gave you license. Was that my intention? Oh God, no. And it's what led me to stop doing that joke, you know? Like, I, I don't want that. And it's a joke I regret. Now, if I had done that joke today on television, First of all, they wouldn't let me do it, thank God. Secondly, there's a a high likelihood I would be torn apart online. But part of me is like, yeah, I probably should be. Consequences. Consequences. (laughs) But, you know, I would hope, though, in the tearing me apart, that there is the goal of rebuilding me and that it's not just my goal, that it's the goal of other people of like, this person still has something to offer us as a human being, and has a track record as someone who's done amazing things and supported lots of people. And this mistake shouldn't define them or restrict their ability to continue good work. And I feel that way about Will Smith, to be perfectly honest. What he did was not a good thing, but we're going to ignore every good thing he's done? And I'm a comic, and seeing that obviously made me very upset, for the reasons we discussed. But are we going to really, like, penalize him to such a degree where this is what stands the the test of time?
0: Hurry told me about a conversation he had on the podcast he hosts with comedian W. Kamal Bell. They spoke with author and activist Adrienne Marie Brown, and she shifted his thinking on cancel culture.
1: She talks about cancel culture from the standpoint of being an abolitionist. And the goal ultimately is not to penalize. It is to learn from, it is to grow, it is to forgive, right? And that's the world we're looking towards. So I'm hoping that this incident is part of that. Instead of cancellation, can we just please think about this as how do we all learn from this? Because ultimately that's what this is about. Like, look, I get it, it's fun to cancel people. It's enjoyable to throw stones. The thing that's almost better than seeing them rise is seeing them fall. There's a cruelty about human beings that we've always had, and with mass media, We all get to be cruel together. It's strangely democratic to be cruel together. But we got to be better than this. And as terrible as that incident was, it's still something to learn from. The conversation we're having now is a crucial conversation about free speech and limits and the impact of free speech and how do we measure impact and how do we measure the power of the different people involved, that's a great conversation that you would hope more people have. And thinking to me isn't being a killjoy. If anything, it leads to joy you didn't know was possible. Because all of a sudden, the more complex your thoughts are, the more things can be funny because there's all sorts of avenues you've never looked in before. It's like I see three colors. Well, then you're limited to three colors. And when you can see all the different shades and all the different complications, it's much more interesting. And the same thing is true with comedy. So I don't know if I'm in the minority on that, but I really do believe that. And that's why I think this is the best era for comedy and art ever.
0: That's it for us this week. But before you go, I want to ask you for a favor. We have a survey that we really want you to fill out because we want to know more about you and what you want us to cover on this show. You can find a link to the survey in the show notes. It will only take a few minutes, I swear. I'm Richard Armstrong, host and senior producer of the podcast. I'm fortunate to make this show every week with a talented group of people. Alicia Key is the show's producer. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway. He mixed this episode with Ellie mcafee Hahn. Graylin Brashear is our senior director of audio. Thanks to Asia Romano and Hurry Kondabolu for talking to me. We'll have a link to Asia's writing in the show notes. And if you want to hear more from Hurry, he's on tour right now. He has shows coming up in D.C., Richmond, Detroit, and other cities. We'll have a link to the tour dates in the show notes. We'll be back next week with a new episode. And in the meantime, be sure to rate, subscribe, tell a friend, and please do the survey.